the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Man has been a professor for decades at New York University, Mark Crispin Miller, professor of media, culture, and communications, and he has a story to tell, so I'm going to let him tell his story. Professor Miller, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Dennis, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. So did you ever think you'd end up on uh, conservative talk radio? Uh, well, actually, I, I was on conservative talk radio back when I was um, uh, investigating Bush Cheney's um, you know, victories in 2000 and 2004. And I, you know, in retrospect, I, I realized that when, you know, um, Bill O'Reilly and, and, and others had me on, uh, it, it was, they were doing something that, that I don't think liberals do, you know, um, which is to, you know, have somebody from the other side come on and, and make his case and argue with him. And that, that was all fine. So I'm not. I'm not at all surprised to be on your show now that I've been hit with what I've been hit with. I find that conservatives, you know, principled conservatives and libertarians are a lot easier to talk to uh, than people on the so-called left, which I, which I no longer recognize. I, I don't see what's really left about it. I think it's kind of insane. And, and my story, I guess, um, is evidence of that insanity. Well, it certainly is. I want to get back to this big, what I call macro issue of the left and about uh, the realization of what I believe are many liberals that their enemy is not us, the conservatives. I, I wonder if you would assent to that, but I, I'm not going to ask you that now. Okay. Most important is to tell your story, so go ahead. Okay. Well, I teach a course on propaganda at uh, NYU. I've been teaching it for about 20 years. And what I always do in starting out the first day is I make clear to the class that I don't teach propaganda as some kind of a remote academic subject. Uh, I believe that propaganda study should actually be a feature of the curriculum in, in uh, every high school and college uh, because it is a very powerful force that very few people understand. And I make the point in class that when you really study propaganda, you have to be prepared to move out of your comfort zone. I mean, wherever you sit on the political spectrum, because if you just dig into a particular propaganda narrative as impartially as possible and look at all the evidence, you're bound to find that some of the things you, you've believed, sometimes believed fervently, are false or maybe half true. I make all this clear. It's a kind of warning, telling them that, that this kind of study is exhilarating in a way. It's, it's really exciting, but it can be sort of difficult 
psychologically and socially. As people will start rolling their eyes when you tell them what you've discovered because they've been listening to their favorite media outlets and they don't know what you know. So I made all this clear. And I said, you know, we will look at the back historical background of propaganda. We'll look at World War One. We'll look at the Nazis. We'll look at the Bolsheviks. But we're really interested in propaganda drives that are going on right now or that are recent enough for you to remember. And I used the example, it was not an assignment, of the mask mandates, which I'd been studying all summer. And I said, um, you know, I, I, I encourage you to read all the randomized controlled trials of masking in hospitals. I, I said there were eight. There were actually ten. Now there are 12, but they, they, I told the class they all have found that masks are not effective at barring the transmission of respiratory viruses. They're too small, those viruses, for masks to keep them out. I said, I would encourage you to read those, and I would encourage you also to read the more recent studies finding otherwise, okay? And I gave them some tips on how a layperson can, you know, sort of assess the soundness of a new study. All right, I said all this. Then um, the following week, uh, a student emailed me and asked to join the class late. So I said, yes, she did. And the subject of masking came up again for about 15 or 20 minutes. She said nothing. The following week, she went on Twitter demanding that NYU fire me for putting the students at risk. And this wasn't just one tweet. It was a stream of tweets, all pretty venomous. She took screenshots of my website, which is markcrispinmiller.com. It's called News from Underground, in which I share stories, information that you're not getting from the media. And she, she tweeted all these as if they were self-evidently false. And she said that all the sites I had taken them from were either right, far right, she said, or conspiracy sites. This is complete nonsense, but she was furious. Now, that's, you know, not pleasant for me, but it's her First Amendment right to do that. I wish she'd spoken up in class. But the astonishing thing, the, the, the real point of the story is that NYU took her side, okay? Here she'd asked that I be fired. My department chair quickly tweeted her his thanks for her tweet and said, this is a quote, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. Okay, this, Dennis, this blew my mind. This was a formal public declaration of departmental approval for this student's, you know, uh, sort of rash tweet uh, based on what she thought I had said in class. Um, and, you know, you look at her profile, she's all BLM and defund the police and all this stuff. So the next day, the dean of my school and this doctor who determines COVID rules for NYU, and they are really draconian rules that have led to several lawsuits. These two guys, without consulting me, emailed my other students directly without putting me on copy. Uh, hinting that I'd given them dangerous misinformation, including a list of links to the recent mask studies, which are pretty sloppy studies. 
and told the class that those were the truth and to believe them. This is the opposite of what I do in class, Dennis. My purpose is to get them to do their own research and make up their own minds, okay? So here we have these administrators horning in, all right? And then finally, I was um, told to cancel the propaganda course for this semester on the pretext that if I taught two sections of my film course, which is very popular, it would be good for the department because of the numbers. The problem with that argument is both classes have a limit of 24 students, and they're both always full. So this was just a pretext. I, I had to do it because the chair said to do it. And I said, I'm doing this under protest. I couldn't take this, okay? This was outrageous. And all too typical of what's going on now across the board. It, it's been going on for decades, but it's been like a, it's reached the crisis point in the age of COVID. So I put up a petition at change.org. Your listeners can find it just by, you know, searching on change.org in my name. And I basically said that NYU should respect my academic freedom. That was the ask in my petition. But I, I was doing it in the name of all professors, all scientists and doctors, all journalists, all whistleblowers, all activists, anyone who has been gagged or punished for their dissidence, certainly over this last year and a half, but really for decades. You know, it's just wrong. It's dead wrong. And I, I, it was like a shot across the bow. Okay, here's, here's the most astonishing thing that happened and why I'm talking to you now. A month after uh, the student attacked me, uh, 25 of my department colleagues sent the dean a letter. He, they didn't tell me they were doing this. They didn't ask me any questions. He emails me with this letter attached saying he had ordered a review of my conduct at the request of my colleagues who accused me of, okay, first of all, they said, I discouraged students from wearing masks in violation of New York state law. Okay, there's no such law, and I did not discourage them from wearing masks. But that was just the jumping off point. They also accused me, and I'm quoting now, of explicit hate speech mounting attacks on students and others in our community, advocating for an unsafe learning environment. Wait, well, what is the hate, hate speech directed at whom? Mask wearers? Well, uh, this had nothing to do with my teaching. It was, it was based on four things I'd written online. Yeah. So, so one um, student, this is, uh, look, I kept quiet the entire uh, time because it was riveting. And I wanted everyone to hear your story, and obviously more. But I just want to note some of my, of my reactions. The fact that one student, one radical student, can, through one tweet or a couple of tweets, cause this much damage shows, one, the fragility of decency at our universities. This, this, tweet, this tweeting radical should have been ignored. Right. She should have been ignored. Or, you know, at most, the, my chair, if he felt compelled to tweet back, he should have said, thank you for your input, right? Right. Have a great day. Have a great day. Good luck to you. Uh, no, no, no. I, Dennis, I actually think that this was um, an opportunity that my colleague seized with the approval, tacit or explicit, of NYU itself. So 
let me just answer your question, the one you asked before the break. Uh, You know, they accused me of explicit hate speech. I was raising questions about transgender ideology. I noted, I wrote a short piece from my listserv, which your listeners can join just by going to markcrispinmiller.com. Four paragraphs on a Sprite commercial that featured a mother breast-binding her daughter. I asked why the Coca-Cola company, which owns Sprite, which is a, a notorious corporate felon, would be celebrating transgenderism, you know, to sell a soft drink. It can't be that there's a huge transgender market for Sprite, right? And I speculated in this piece that it probably has something to do with a eugenics agenda, a depopulation agenda, which I've actually studied in depth, the whole historical move toward that kind of so-called population control. Uh, so they regarded that as hate speech. Well, I don't, I, I don't follow that. How does that lead to eugenics? Well, because um, this is a complicated history, but you know, eugenics was a big movement in the first half of the yes, 20th I'm, century. I'm very well aware. Justice right. Brandeis even voted for it. Well, yes, uh, very popular with you know the um, intelligentsia and so on, and it had to go underground briefly after the Holocaust, because the eugenics enthusiasts had been celebrating Hitler's uh, rise to power because they said this is finally a head of state who understands our philosophy. Right, who was getting rid of the uh, the ill and, and, I'm sorry, what was the word you were using? The unfit. The unfit, that's right, yes. That was Margaret Sanger's word for Right, it. the she unfit, was a, perfect. a rabid eugenicist, mm-hmm. right? Uh so it, it reemerged in the early 50s uh, with the founding of the Population Council. This is 1952. That was Rockefeller money. And the Rockefellers have always been, you know, big, big enthusiasts for this kind of thing. And so is Bill Gates. Okay. Gates has said, he said in 2010, that he'd like to see the global population reduced by 10 to 15 percent. I think he really wants it to be reduced by far more, you know, as Ted Turner who is a you know an ally of his has been very explicit in saying the population should be reduced by up to ninety five percent. Yeah, this Ted Turner who, said he regrets having as many children as he had. Uh, yeah, that I don't believe because these people are free to procreate, you know, like rabbits. Right. I mean, David right. Rockefeller had five children also. Right. And what I'm saying is that I, I there's a strong um, uh, eugenicist. Uh, this is kind of a eugenicist. Uh, right, but I don't understand the connection between the pro-transgender crowd and eugenics. Because uh, if you encourage that kind of mutilation, I'm talking about you know surgery, transition surgery, and subject children to regimens of uh, puberty blockers and hormones, which is also incidentally very profitable for big pharma, you are you are sterilizing them. You know, you are, you are giving them- oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. Mean? That's that's medically accurate. It is medically accurate. That's right. Okay, I- so you said this, and now NYU has accused you not only of debunking masks, but of hate speech. Yeah, and let me add, Dennis, that I also uh, you know strongly questioned allowing biological males 
to compete in girls and women's athletics. Right. You know, I consider myself a sane feminist, and on feminist grounds, that is simply wrong. Right. Okay? But none of, the feminist, saying, none of the feminist organizations agree with you. Well, you know, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I find right. myself asking, let me say, where are all the women who say my body, my choice, right, when we're being subjected to a mandatory experimental vaccination program? You know, very few people. All right. So you have a, you have a big flaw, my friend. What's that? No, no. You have common sense and you search for truth. That immediately renders you an outlier at any university in this country. NYU in particular, I'm going to come back to you. He is in trouble for saying what he believes. He is in trouble for seeking truth. He is in trouble for not following what the left wants every professor to say. Have, is that fair, what I just said? Yeah, yeah, I just want to make one point about it. The, my so-called colleagues, uh, they are my colleagues, but my colleagues on the so-called left have indeed uh, come after me for, um, you know, dissenting from their dogma. That is a fact. But I think they're, I suspect that they're being used by um, a very, very corporate university with an enormous investment in the vaccine industry and the whole COVID narrative. Uh, they want to get rid of me uh, because I'm a pain in the ass as far as they're concerned. You know, it's, it's when the Nazis came to power, they did something that's called Gleichschaltung, which means streamlining. That meant making sure that all cultural institutions, publishing houses, schools, you name it, were all streamlined, which is to say completely unified in their commitment to the Nazi ideology. Okay? Well, I think NYU is, is, is doing something like that to me because I'm raising really important questions. And more importantly, I'm encouraging my students to study, to do research into these issues on their own and make up their own minds. So it's like teaching the slaves to read, right? Massa doesn't want that. They don't want citizens who are thoughtful, independent-minded, you know. They, they want something more like what you'd find in China, okay? And, of course, they have a, a branch in Shanghai, and there's a member of the Chinese government on the board of trustees. I think he's in the government. He might be with, a, you know, some real estate company. But the point is, I, I, your listeners, I just have to tell you and them that I went through my colleague's letter with a fine-tooth comb. I wrote a very careful rebuttal of every single charge. I said, your letter is a, either a pack of lies or delusions, and I asked that you retract it and apologize. They ignored that request. I sent it again. They ignored that, okay? So I am suing them for libel. Okay, that's, that's why I'm on the show. I want people to know that this is my um, attempt to say no, again, in the name of all those who've been canceled, who've been persecuted, who've been punished, who've been fired, who've been deplatformed. I don't care where they, they are on the political spectrum, okay? This lawsuit is my attempt to turn the tide, okay? I have a GoFundMe page. You can just do a search on my name and the word libel, and you can get the whole story. All the documents in this lawsuit, Dennis, are up on my website at markcrispinmiller.com. And again, people can join my listserv 
and get a daily, you know, get all these emails from me, uh, or they could a daily digest option and just get one. I think but it's I, very I, important. Mark I, Crispin, C R I S P I N Miller dot com. That's right. I have a question, and that is: yeah. Has any professor at NYU come to your defense? Um, the answer to that question is very troubling and um, uh, disappointing. The only person who has come to my defense is an untenured woman uh, in in the uh, sort of the night school who has been referring students to me over the years. I've, I've guest lectured to her classes, untenured, and she has come to my defense. I think about eight members of the faculty in my department uh, did not sign the letter, but not one of them has reached out to me. No colleague has reached out to me. I have heard nothing from the administration for months. Now, it's significant, Dennis, that this review uh, that they're supposedly conducting is completely groundless legally and constitutionally. And the president at NYU got a detailed letter to that effect from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. That's yeah, the fire. Acronym, the fire, right. He ignored that letter. Okay. The reason why the dean ordered the review, the dean told me in our one conversation, is that university lawyers told them they must. Okay. That strikes me as evidence that they're behind this. Okay. The review was supposed to end in mid-December. So the review, I told the dean I was going to have students write letters in my the defense, and they got over 50. They you know, did? Really? Fun. Really? Students, 50 students came to your defense? Well, uh, over 50, most of them students, some of them former visitors to my classes who've seen me teach. I think they have about 55 or 56. Right, so you're being accused of hate speech. Um, and uh, what about the, the mask? Did the, the, the mask thing arise? That you, are you killing students? Is that part well, of the yeah, charge? Uh, my, my, my colleague's letter started with the accusation that I discouraged the students from wearing masks, which is a fantasy. I did not. Uh-huh. Too bad. Like I, I think you should have, but it doesn't well, matter. Well, okay. yeah, but it's not my, you know, my, my no, job no, no. Is, Fine. is to get the students. Well, look, Dennis, I've been vindicated now that we have Dr. Fauci's emails because they make clear that he, he never believed that masks work. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I, I got, there's an essay on, on my website. Uh, it's called Masking Ourselves to Death which I put up in September, and I think your listeners will find it extremely enlightening. Oh, good. I want to read that. I've been following the mask issue. When you cited studies that showed masks were worthless, did you cite the New England Journal of Medicine, universal masking in hospitals in the COVID-19 era? Uh, Well, I did did not yet because, you know, it hadn't come out. Oh, no, no, it did. No, it came out May 21st, 2020. Let me, oh, re- oh. let me read this excerpt to you. I have read it to my listeners many times. Right, right. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine, the most prestigious medical journal in the United States, though no longer. Right. None of them are prestigious any longer. They're like universities. But in any event, uh, three MDs or five MDs wrote it. We know that wearing a mask outside healthcare facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. Public health authorities define a significant exposure to COVID-19 as face-to-face contact within six feet with a patient with symptomatic 
COVID-19 that is sustained for at least a few minutes and some say more than 10 minutes or even 30 minutes. The chance of catching COVID-19 from a passing interaction in a public space is therefore minimal. In many cases, the desire for widespread masking is a reflexive reaction to anxiety over the pandemic. Right, right. There is there is a new, uh, an NEJM uh, article uh, among the eight that I told the students to read. It was probably that one. Uh, there's also one in the British Journal of Medicine that finds that cloth masks are not only ineffective, but right, exactly. the danger of, of right. infection. Well, uh, that, the, that, that, they're that, talismans. All right, so I have, a, I have the big macro right. question to ask you. Go. If I had you on my show five years ago and said to you, uh, Professor Miller, how would you characterize yourself as liberal, progressive, or left? What would you have said? Well, I, you know, even then I would have said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more or less on the left, but, but I'm very different from a lot of other people on the left. You know, I've, I've been on the outs with them really since 2005 when I my book on the 2004 election came out. It was an interesting, it was from basic books, was very carefully sourced, but the theft of an election. And while the corporate media completely blacked it out, um, the left press attacked me as a conspiracy theorist. And they, these are magazines I'd written for, and they were written by people I knew and thought of as friends. It was really strange, and it got me thinking when I got over the shock about that phrase, conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist, and I dug deep into that history, and it turns out, Dennis, that prior to 1967, that phrase was only used now and then in the media, conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theorist had never been used. Why did it start in 1967? Because that year, the CIA sent out a memo to all station chiefs worldwide. It's memo 1035-960. You can find it online. And it, it was about the problem. They called it the problem of uh, certain books having come out questioning the Warren report on Kennedy's assassination. They regarded these books, one of which was a bestseller, as a problem. And the solution was to discredit the author's and it instructed its station chiefs to use their media assets to attack these writers as conspiracy theorists. And it gave a number of, you know, facile talking points that they could use in their various articles, you know. And then you, you find that from then on, the use of the phrase in the press just increases and increases and increases after King's assassination, after Bobby's assassination, after Iran-Contra especially after 9-11, now it's used all the time. Now it's associated with the far right, right? Back in 67, as you'll see in the memo, they said it, it's a good idea to associate this with the communists and the Kremlin. So it, it was, you know, these writers were discredited as connected to the far left back then. Now it's the far right, and, you know, this last election was demonstrably stolen, it seems to me. And that whole charade in the Capitol was a psychological operation. It was theater. That was a large, that was a completely peaceful march. 
you know, I know a lot of people who were there. Well, I, I well just... you, you do. You get my courage award. I have one final question. Do you wear oh, a yeah. mask when you teach? <laughs> no. No. But I, I'm not allowed in any of the university buildings because I'm not vaccinated. Right. And I'm, I'm Sir. not going to... All right. com. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.